the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thursday morning to you. Welcome into the Dave Ellswick Show. This is J.R. Davis. I'm filling in for Dave. I have the honor of filling in for Dave this morning. Dave is undergoing uh, surgery right now, I believe. So we uh, are thinking of Dave this morning. Uh, I'm excited. This is the first time that I've filled in for Dave. Three full glorious hours. Uh, and I came in early this morning to try to get a few things uh, prepared. Uh, but three hours is a long time, Zach. It's a very, very long time just to talk. So I'm a little lonely in here this morning. Yeah, but once you get going, man, once you get flowing, yeah. it'll go by just like That's that. That's true. It will. Man, I love to hear myself talk, so I'm just kidding. Uh, hey, listen, for the first hour, it's just going to be uh, me and Zach here, uh, but we've got a pretty nice guest list this morning uh, at the top of the hour, um, or at 7 o'clock, 7.05, we'll have Senator John Bozeman on the show to talk a little bit about what's going on in Washington. Obviously, there was a big vote yesterday in the House uh, on the eight-plus billion dollars uh, for the coronavirus. The Senate is set to vote on that today, so we'll get his thoughts and just kind of lay of the land, what he sees going on uh, with the Democratic uh, primary that just keeps coalescing around Joe Biden. That'll be interesting to hear from Senator Bozeman. And then Right around 7.35, we'll have Governor Asa Hutchinson on. Uh, he released his budget yesterday. Uh, and we had elections Tuesday night, so we'll have uh, the head of the Republican Party um, for the state weigh in on all that. He had some comments yesterday at Political Animals in Little Rock. So I want to ask him about that and what he sees, um, you know, the shape of the party right now in Arkansas uh, and we'll get his thoughts on the Democratic primary as well. And then we've got a lot of uh, different guests popping in this morning. We'll have uh, some uh, folks from the governor's office, uh, Katie Beck and Chelsea O'Kelly, and then John Gilmore and Red Hatcher uh, from my firm, Gilmore Strategy Group, will come in for the eight to nine hour. And again, we'll just kind of talk about polling, uh, what we saw on election night, um, and, and just kind of update everybody on some of those races that have runoffs, um, and and some races that have some some controversies going on right now, including uh, House District uh, 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 31 uh, going for a recount. So lots of stuff to talk about this morning. Right now, let's. Uh, I wanted to kind of dive into yesterday's um, controversial comments from Chuck Schumer, uh, the senator from New York. Uh, he was at a rally outside the Supreme Court yesterday. 
and and he's he's coming under some fire today and yesterday for some of these comments that he had to say about certain Supreme Court justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Uh, we have a clip. I'm going to run it. We're going to come back. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts weighed, on, weighed in on this, too. So we'll get to that in a moment. Go ahead and roll that clip. Inside the walls of this court, the Supreme Court is hearing arguments, as you know, for the first major abortion right cases since Justices Kavanaugh and Justices Gorsuch came to the bench. We know what's at stake. Over the last three years, women's reproductive rights have come under attack in a way we haven't seen in modern history. From Louisiana to Missouri to Texas, Republican legislatures are waging a war on women, all women, and they're taking away fundamental rights. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. There you go. He just seems like he's kind of coming off a little like half cocked, just a little bit. Uh, I mean, he does. He sounds kind of deranged. Maybe it's the names. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, how he pronounces Gorsuch uh, and Kavanaugh, but he just he just comes across like he's a bit deranged in that speech. He also sounds exhausted a little bit. He does. He does. I mean, I, I mean, like I said, I can notice it too. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, uh, so this is so. I yeah, hear the comments there. Um, he was pretty fired up. He, he had his crowd pretty fired up. But uh, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts, um, you know, someone who doesn't really speak out a whole lot uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, comments from federal uh, comments towards federal judges. He doesn't really say too much. He he did yesterday, though. This is what he said. This is from New York Times article. Uh, Quote, justices know that criticism comes with the territory, but threatening statements of this sort from the highest levels of government are not only inappropriate, they are dangerous. Uh, He goes on to say that, quote, all members of the court will continue to do their job without fear or favor from whatever quarter. Uh, And so for some context here, uh, again, this is uh, uh, Schumer. He was speaking while the while the court heard arguments uh, in a major abortion case. Uh, He attacked uh, Trump's. Those are Trump's two Supreme Court justices that he's appointed since uh, he was elected. And that's Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Um, so there's this big case going on, first big abortion case uh, that the Supreme Court is hearing uh, right now. Uh, of course, with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh being on the bench now, uh, and you remember the whole back and forth with Kavanaugh, whether or not he would support uh, you know, the law of the land now in Roe versus Wade, or would there be some thought to overturning that? Uh, so there's a lot going on there. That's sort of the context for what Schumer said yesterday, uh, and then the response from the Chief Justice. And I got to, you know, it's it's so, we live in this environment now with politics, especially national politics, where, uh, you know, we love to point fingers and, 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 you know, basically, you know, chastise the current president for uh, the way he acts, what he says. Uh, but this just seems, uh, I mean, 
you know, pot calling the kettle black here. I mean, it's just sort of comments that that Trump would be roasted for. Uh, you have the you know minority leader of the Senate going out there and saying something you'd expect Trump to say, just you know, opposite. But that kind of makes sense, you know, if that's who they what they've been this entire time since he's been elected president. You know, every move he makes, you know, it's going to be criticized by them. It's just follows along, you know, with yeah. their motto, their motto, basically. Yeah, it's it was just interesting yesterday to hear those comments from Schumer, and it's fired up a lot of folks. I mean, uh, this is I'm going to read a little bit more from this uh, article in the New York Times today. It's kind of recapping uh, yesterday's events and the exchanges. Uh, Mr. Trump later joined the criticism uh, after uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, put out his statement. Uh, he accused Mr. Schumer of making quote a direct and dangerous threat to the U.S. Supreme Court. Of course, uh, he said on Twitter that if a Republican had made those remarks, he or she would be arrested or impeached, which, again, he has a point. Now, you know, four years of Trump, we've all sort of uh, been desensitized a little bit. We just kind of know, you know, this is this is the way he operates. This is what he says. We're used to it. Um, but again, this is just sort of what happens, especially, at, and again, we're talking national politics here. Democrats have a knack uh, for the double standard. Right. And and they love to, uh, you know, point to Republicans and say, this isn't the way you should handle it. You shouldn't say this. We should be above the fray, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then they turn around and, and do whatever they want to do and, and just try to make Republicans feel bad for doing it in the first place. That is just textbook D.C. Democrats and, and, and what they do. It's basically, you know, uh, I mean, it's just hypocrisy. So. That's where we are today. This is a spokesman for Schumer uh, uh, said that the chief justice had engaged in a willful misrepresentation. He said, quote, Senator Schumer's comments were a reference to the political price Senate Republicans will pay for putting these justices on the court and a warning that the justices will unleash a major grassroots movement on the issue of reproductive rights. Uh, This is from uh, Schumer's spokesperson. Um. So, yeah, uh, he went on to say for Justice Roberts to follow the right wing's deliberate misinterpretation of what Senator Schumer said while remaining silent when President Trump attacked Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg last week shows Justice Roberts uh, does not call balls and strikes. Um, So obviously lots going on. So for reference, last week, the chief justice declined to comment on uh, the president's comments when he called justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and and Sonia Sotomayor two liberal members of the court to recuse themselves from all cases involving Trump. Um, So again, I just go back to, you know, we clearly heard what uh, Senator Schumer said uh, and we, which I, I think it's appropriate for the chief justice certainly to weigh in on this. I think, you know, you point back to say what, what Trump said uh, I don't think it kind of holds a candle to, especially the tone of it. All right, so uh, we're going to move away from this topic here in a second. But but again, this is what uh, the spokesperson for Schumer said in response uh, to the, the Chief Justice comment. I just want to read it to you again, and then we're going to play this clip again, and I want you to be the judge. This is what he said. Senator Schumer's comments were a reference to the political price Senate Republicans will pay for putting these justices on the court and a warning that the justices will unleash a major grassroots movement on the issue of reproductive rights uh, for Justice Roberts to follow the right wing's deliberate misinterpretation 
of what Senator Schumer said shows Justice Roberts does not call balls and strikes. So he's basically saying, hey, listen, this, you know, this this is not at all what the senator was saying. He was just saying that because, you know, if they decide to, you know, overturn Roe versus Wade or something like that, to that effect, that there's going to be a grassroots movement, people are going to be upset, they're going to vote Republicans out of office. That's what the spokesperson is saying, right? That there was no there was no actual threat to the uh the justices play that clip again inside the walls of this court the supreme court is hearing arguments as you know for the first major abortion right cases since justices kavanaugh and justices gorsuch came to the bench we know what's at stake Over the last three years, women's reproductive rights have come under attack in a way we haven't seen in modern history. From Louisiana to Missouri to Texas, Republican legislatures are waging a war on women, all women. And they're taking away fundamental rights. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, You have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. (laughs) And you will pay the price. And by the way, when he's when he's doing that weird long pause about you know Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, he's he's giving the thumbs down. Um, So, I mean, the tone of it certainly feels threatening. uh, But anytime, and Zach, help me out here. I mean, anytime someone says you will pay the price. I feel like that's a it's a pretty threatening tone. You do, especially yeah. you know. It dep- it, sometimes it really depends on who you're talking to. Maybe sometimes you know someone's just joking with you. But for the most part, yes, you know, you feel like you've been threatened before. But Senator Schumer's spokesperson says that is not what happened yesterday. So as a former spokesperson, I can tell you, believe him. <laughs> uh, spokespeople have to stick together. Um, so yeah, so that was just, that was, uh, an interesting exchange yesterday. I think for conservatives, that was a nice move on Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, part because quite frankly, he takes a lot of heat, uh, for not being a true conservative. So nice comments yesterday. It was good for him to stand up and say what he said. It was wrong for Schumer to say what he said. Uh, and I'm sure this will not uh, die down anytime soon. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back uh, in a few few minutes, and we'll talk about some of the local races from Tuesday night, get into some Arkansas politics here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm J.R. Davis filling in for Dave this morning. Uh, We've got a pretty big show for you this morning. We'll have Senator John Bozeman at around 7.05, Governor Hutchinson around 7.35, lots of guests in the 7 to 8 hour eight to nine. Uh, We're going to be talking about the coronavirus, national politics, local politics, some of the races that are still undone here in the state of Arkansas. Uh, And I want to dive into some of those right now. Uh, It was a big Tuesday night. Wasn't a lot going on on the ballot here in Arkansas from a local perspective. Uh, We did have the Democrats race. Biden did what Biden did across the South. Uh, and swept 74 of 75 counties in Arkansas, did really well in the South. Uh, And quite frankly, uh, I don't know that I've seen the sort of bump 
uh, in modern politics that Joe Biden had uh, has had since South Carolina. I mean, he was dead in the water it on t- Friday. Yeah, it totally surprised me when I woke up that morning and saw the results. I was like, wait, he won that many states? Yeah. You know, I thought that Sanders, you know, was clearly the front runner. Yeah. I mean, the the national pundits, and we're going to get back to the local races, but just want to say this. The national pundits were basically trying to figure out who was going to challenge Bernie Sanders. Who was, which one of the Democrats would the rest coalesce around to take on Sanders? And no one thought it was going to be Biden. On Friday before the South Carolina primary, everyone, and I mean everyone, had Biden fourth, fifth, sixth, and, you know, for good reason. He had performed terribly uh, in the Iowa caucuses. New Hampshire got a second place in Nevada, but it was such a huge gap between first and second. And so people thought, hey, he's probably going to win South Carolina. How much? We're not sure. And he went in there and, and performed, I think, probably above expectations. And people saw that there's a floor there with Joe Biden, uh, that there's a floor of support, uh, and and that possibly he could be that candidate to challenge Bernie Sanders. And oh my goodness, a whirlwind of events uh, from basically Saturday evening once they called it for Biden uh, in South Carolina earlier than that, but you get my drift. Uh, Sunday into Monday, you had Buttigieg suspend his campaign, Amy Klobuchar suspend her campaign. Those are the moderates in this race, which is just funny to call these candidates moderates, I guess for their party, they're moderates, all of them super left-leaning. And they all flew to Texas, endorsed Joe Biden. Uh, Good old Francis O'Rourke was there as well. He endorsed Biden as well, which, by the way, I believe... Good old Uncle Joe, the moderate, the conservative in this race for Democratic uh, nominee for president, I believe basically said he's going to let old Beto uh, run some of his his gun policies, which that's terrifying. Uh, So just remember that. So just remember, again, when people say these are conservative or moderate Democrats, good old Uncle Joe, that is not the case at all. Uh, This is still the party that wants to... Uh, take away uh, the Second Amendment, um, uh, pro-choice, all that sort of stuff. So just just remember that when there's all these tingly feelings, right, around the Democrats coalescing around good old Uncle Joe. But I say all that to say three days backing, uh, two big endorsements, three big endorsements, and then Super Tuesday comes and Joe just blows it out of the water. I mean, the man who was literally, people were, you know, throwing dirt on the casket of Joe Biden's campaign, and Joe just, the Joe Minum, the Joe Minum takes effect, and in three days, the guy has the delegate lead. We're still trying to figure out what's going on in California. It's going to take forever for anyone to actually know what the delegate count is over there, uh, which hurts, you know, quite frankly, Bernie Sanders. He's going to win it. He's going to get most of the delegates. He will lead in delegates before then, uh, before the uh, when those um, numbers finally come in from California, but it hurts the momentum. And on the other hand, you've got Joe, who won Texas, surprisingly, did phenomenal on Super Tuesday. Um, and so that'll be interesting. I said we we're going to talk about Arkansas politics. We will uh, right after this break on the Dave Ellswick Show. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is J.R. Davis filling in for Dave this morning. 
It is 635, 48 degrees outside, so not too bad on this Thursday morning. Let's dive into some of the races uh, that I've been teasing for, I guess, the last 30 minutes now. I just haven't gotten to it. Uh, again, not a whole lot on the ballot um, Tuesday night here in Arkansas. A lot of judicial races. Our mailbox are breathing a sigh of relief at this point. I must have received somewhere 15 mail pieces for judicial candidates in the last two weeks. That's probably an understatement. It was a lot. Uh, so finally, my rep, my mailbox can uh, rest and just get its you know regular mail and not all the different mail pieces that were coming out. But there was a lot of judicial candidates. Um, there's only one statewide race, uh, and that was for Supreme Court. Uh, Barbara Womack Webb going up against Judge Morgan Chip Welch, and Barbara uh, won handily. And I think that was a lot of surprise to a lot of people. Not that she won, but this is the first real test case in Arkansas, uh, at least uh, sort of in modern history, where we have a candidate going up against uh, someone with judge in front of their name. And a lot of people think that, you know, just the title judge carries a lot of weight. You've heard it where, you know, some people believe it's worth about 10 points. Uh, Some people put a dollar figure on that and how much it's worth to the candidate. Uh, So that was was sort of the test case. Would it matter? Um, And, uh, you know, what we saw on election night was, you know, it didn't. And, And so both candidates ran their races uh, and full disclosure, uh, Gilmore Strategy Group was the were the consultants for uh, Barbara Webb uh, for Supreme Court. But look, we ran. She ran a great race. She got her message out there. And at the end of the night, I think probably the most surprising uh, was not that she won, but by how much she won. Uh, the final uh, numbers: fifty four percent to forty six percent. She won by. Uh, around 35,000 uh, votes, 36,000 votes, pretty wide margin. And if you looked at the numbers throughout the night on Tuesday, it, she never lost that lead. When she started to uh, separate herself, she kept building upon it every time you saw new numbers come in. What was interesting, though, if you look into the numbers, uh, both candidates in their home counties, uh, uh, Welch in Pulaski, Webb in Saline. Both won their counties, but it was by a much smaller margin than I think both uh, uh, campaigns probably thought. Uh, and and what was more detrimental uh, for Welch than Webb was the fact that his focus really was on Pulaski County. Uh, I, th- I feel like a lot of the time uh, that he spent was here, especially with the legal community. Uh, and so he was all in on Pulaski, but those early votes... It came in, I think it was 12000 uh for Chip, uh, about 9000 for Barbara. Not necessarily sort of that 60-40 he was hoping for, but in the same way with Saline County, you know, Barbara won, but not by as much as I think some thought. But then you start going statewide, and, and Barbara Webb uh, won in Jefferson County. Um, she won in Washington County. Uh, there were a lot of big pockets for her in places like Sebastian County um, and, and up in, in, in uh, Boone and Baxter uh, and over in Northeast. So it was a very interesting race, uh, wide margin, uh, impressive race run there by Barbara Webb. 
And then we start looking at some of the other races that were of interest here in the state. A lot of these local races. Again, there were a lot of judicial races, circuit judge, state district court. And then, of course, you had uh, the Supreme Court. But we had a few really interesting uh, state house races. There were about five state senate races uh, that were uh, going on Tuesday night, three Republican, two Democrat uh, those races went pretty much as predicted. You had Senator Alan Clark, the incumbent there in the Hot Springs area. He won re-election uh, easily. Um, and, and then, of course, uh, we had the uh, Senate race up in northeast Arkansas. Dave's spoken a lot about that. Uh, that was Senator John Cooper, Dan Sullivan, handily uh, won that race. Uh, but then we had also one in south Arkansas with Ben Gilmore against George Dunklin. Uh, and that was a squeaker. Uh, both campaigns ran great races. Uh, ben, I think, got in earlier, knocked more doors, won by just short of 200 votes. So it was a pretty uh, pretty close race down there. A fairly decent turnout as well. So a lot of voters in South Arkansas voting in that race on Tuesday night. So we kind of ex- what we expect in the Senate races pretty much uh, happened on Tuesday night on the Republican side, but then there were the House races. Specifically, there were the House races uh, in the Saline, West Pulaski County areas where you had uh, one, Marietta McClure against Tony Furman and R.J. Hawk uh, against Keith Brooks. And so uh, going into the night, and I think everyone would, would back this up, um, going into the night, I think the idea was uh, that in State House District 28, which was Furman and McClure, McClure was the front runner. Um, you know, she was she had the backing from a lot of folks. She was a small business owner uh, in uh, the Benton area. Uh, she has McClure Fitness, uh, so a lot of people knew who she was, um, and so you know, and she had the money. Uh, and but there was this issue. There were three issues. One was it was the residency issue. Did she actually live inside the district? Um, that was one question. The other question was, hey, she worked for Senator Pryor. Is she a Democrat? What was she doing when she was working there? Well, they explained that, that you know she uh, at the time there was no uh, Republican representation from Arkansas in the United States Senate. Okay, that's understandable, forgivable. And then, and then the, prob- the most recent issue that popped up uh, was the fact that she appeared in an ad uh, from the Democrat Governors Association back in 2014 attacking uh, then-candidate Asa Hutchinson, the Republican nominee for governor, uh, in an ad that ran statewide. And she had, you know, a part in in the ad where she actually criticized uh, Governor Hutchinson and said that's not the kind of governor we need here in Arkansas. And so there was a lot of that that was sort of, you know, out there. The question was, could Furman's campaign make those connections? And I I guess he did, uh, because on Tuesday night, Tony Furman, with a massive upset, I think, in a lot of people's uh, minds, 1,851 votes to 1,196, 60%, and he wins that primary I think that was a lot of um, surprise on a lot of folks uh, that night because, again, it was about how do you connect that. And, and here's what I think happens. 
when you have one thing, when it's the residency issue, people wonder, does she live here? Does she not live here? What's her intent? Okay, maybe, you know, we, we deal with that a lot here in Arkansas in some of these races. But then you had sort of the second drip, which was she worked for Pryor. She was a Democrat staffer. Okay, maybe they explain that way. Then the third drip, you know, she was in a DGA ad against Governor Hutchinson. And it was the series of drips, I think, throughout the campaign. And I'll give it to to Tony uh, and his campaign. But Ken Yang uh, ran that race uh, with Tony. They did a tremendous job just getting that message out. And again, I'm not saying I don't have a dog in the fight. I just, you know, game respects game, Zach. And so I thought it was interesting how they took that message and and really got it out there uh, for voters to understand uh, and connect with before they head, they headed to the, the ballot. And that was the early vote, too. When the early votes came in, so they did their work beforehand and they got their people to the polls. So that was an interesting race. And then we had uh, the race, State House District 31. Full disclosure, uh, Gilmore Strategy Group uh, – uh, Keith Brooks is a client of ours, uh, but that race, Keith Brooks, R.J. Hawk, both are great candidates, absolutely great candidates. Uh, R.J. Uh, picked up a couple of key endorsements from Tim Griffin, our lieutenant governor, and our attorney general, Leslie Rutledge. Uh, he had some, uh, he had more money, more resources than Keith, so the idea was that uh, R.J. would win this race. And that's what most people expected going into election night. And that was probably one of the crazier elections of the night in that at one point they were just tied up 885 to 885. Uh, They were going back and forth. I believe RJ led in Saline County um, and then early on was leading in Pulaski towards around 11 o'clock at night. Uh, it showed that Keith was down 11 votes to RJ. At some point, and I think it's in the the paper today, there's an article uh, talking about this, but but RJ, um, he, I'm not sure what time it was, but felt that the Secretary of State's office had, had confirmed that he won by 11 votes. He got a call from Governor Hutchinson congratulating him on the win. And then all of a sudden, and and I'll give it to uh, one of my my partners in, in Gilmore Strategy Group, Brett Hatcher. Thought you know there's a few votes that are still out there. He thought you know, and again they were showing 100 percent reported, but it felt like there were a few more votes out there. So we were talking on the phone around 11. Keith was down 11. Uh, get a text message about 15 minutes later. They updated the votes. Now he's up 27 over RJ, uh, who who had just uh, you know basically put out a video saying that he'd won the race and 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 totally understand uh, why he did that. He had the governor call him and congratulate him. There was a lot of confusion in that race. Well, now Keith Brooks is the winner of that uh, uh, house race down there in Saline and West Pulaski. It's just so crazy uh, how many close races we've had in this state over the last couple of cycles. We talk about the Democratic uh, race where, you know, we had the overseas ballot from Sweden decided by one vote. Uh, we have this race. Uh, we have the race down in South Arkansas with Ben Gilmore uh, decided by less than 200 votes. So I really, I, it's kind of funny. People say every vote matters. You hear it, it's cliche. 
it really is the case here in Arkansas. I mean, it, any number of these races feels like it could be decided by just a handful of votes. Um, and that's what we've seen in the last couple of cycles. But anyway, right now with the uh, Keith Brooks race and R.J. Hawk race, uh, Keith is leading. He's got 27 votes. R.J. requested a recount uh, yesterday with the Pulaski County Election Commission and the Saline County Election Commission. We'll see where we go from there. That will more than likely um, happen sometime uh, before next Monday, which is when they have to certify uh, the election. So uh, it'll be interesting. We'll see what happens there. But two great candidates. Uh, The good news about that is, look, we've got redistricting coming up. There's going to be probably another house seat there in the Saline area just because of the growth that's taken place uh, in Saline County. Uh, And so whoever walks away from this election as the next state representative from District 31, now they do have a Democrat, but let's call it what it is. They will be the next state representative from District 31. Uh, The one who does not uh, walk away with a win has a chance to come back uh, with some name ID for the next go around because I think the legislature would benefit from both guys being in the legislature. We're at a point now where we're looking for quality candidates over quantity. We've got the quantity. We're looking for quality. And I think both both guys measure up um, to that for sure. So a lot of a lot of interesting races going on. Brant Smith uh, taking on Ken Yarborough up in uh, northeast Arkansas. He won handily. Uh, we had some interesting races up in northwest Arkansas. The Adrian Woods, John Carr race. Uh, a lot of people thought that, that Adrian Woods would win that race. John Carr um, won instead. Uh, we have a runoff with uh, Ken Underwood and Jana De La Rosa, which will be interesting. Again, Jana De La Rosa is, is one candidate that I think people, uh, she just is like kind of a cat with nine lives. You know, you think she's, she's, she's out, she's back in, now she, she's the lead vote getter um, and going into the runoff. And so she's, she's doing a, a nice job up there. And, and so... Lots of interesting races, most interesting here in central Arkansas. Uh, lots of surprises on Tuesday night, even though there wasn't a whole lot on the ballot. Uh, the good thing is around the 8 to 9 hour, I'm going to have my partners from Gilmore Strategy Group, John Gilmore and Red Hatcher, in studio. We're going to talk more about the numbers, which will be really, really interesting, what we're seeing, uh, what we expect to see in the runoffs and on into the general election. Uh, so that's coming up between 8 and 9 o'clock. Uh, at the top of this hour, we're going to have Senator John Bozeman talking about what's going on in D.C., the coronavirus, uh, the emergency funding that was approved by the House yesterday will be approved by the Senate today. Uh, so lots of interesting stuff to get to in just a little bit. We're going to take a quick break and come back to the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm J.R. Davis filling in for Dave Ellswick. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is J.R. Davis filling in for Dave Ellswick we got about five minutes. I want to get into something. We can talk about it more in the 7 o'clock hour. Voter turnout among young voters, Super Tuesday, was atrocious. It was so bad. Uh, here are some of the statistics here. In addition, uh, well, so the Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, of course, when he holds a rally, you have all of these young people show up. There are throngs of, of youth there supporting the Senator but what we saw in Super Tuesday is not a lot of them were going out to vote. Uh, in Alabama, only 10% of the voters 
were in the 17 to 29 age range compared to 14% in 2016. So again, remember how much youth vote Sanders had in 2016. We're not seeing that necessarily this time around. Uh, Sanders won 46% of those voters Tuesday compared to 40% in 2016, so he did a little bit better. There just weren't as many to grab. Uh, In North Carolina, 14% of Tuesday's electorate were young voters compared to 16% four years ago. South Carolina, uh, young voters made up 11% of the electorate compared to 15% in 16. That's a huge drop. Tennessee, 11% versus 15 In Virginia, 13% compared to 16. So atrocious youth vote showing up on Super Tuesday, which really, I think, hindered the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, I want to play a cut here uh, talking about, uh, this is from Al Sharpton, talking about the surge of younger voters that Bernie Sanders hoped for didn't happen. You were just in Alabama, were you not? That's right. What do you make of this poll closing call? I'm not surprised. I think that I've been saying all along that if you go into states that have diversity, Biden was always a favorite. Mm. And I think a lot of it has to do with his work with Barack Obama. But I think a lot of it was also accelerated by what happened in South Carolina. And what I think we are seeing tonight, and I think uh, uh, you or Brian mentioned it, uh, is that the surge of young voters has not happened uh, so far. The night is early. And the turnout seems to be more Biden in the states that we've seen uh, than uh, we've seen of Sanders. And I think a lot of us were buying into what ends up now looking like some political talk uh, or projections uh, by one camp rather than the reality. As I traveled around the country, a lot of people were saying they want stability. With the, with the coronavirus, don't, don't underestimate the impact that could be of in the middle of this disaster, and you're looking at a president that starts by calling it a hoax and now is still fumbling. A lot of that are in people's minds as they went to vote today. And so far tonight is a, a huge night for Joe Biden. So there you go. He gets into the coronavirus a little bit, but just the youth vote. That's what Bernie Sanders needs. That's what he expects to get. And it did not happen on Super Tuesday. We'll see what happens uh, the next time out. But the youth vote did not happen. I'm going to run through these numbers one more time before we take a quick break. Alabama, 10% of the voters were 17 to 29 compared to 14% and 16. North Carolina, down 2%, two percentage points from 16. South Carolina, down 4% from 16. Tennessee, down 4%. From 16, Virginia uh, down 3%, so on and so forth. Even in Sanders' home state of Vermont, they had lackluster turnout of young millennials. Uh, Only 11% of the state's electorate was under 30 compared to 15% when he ran against Clinton. Texas, which we saw a big upset, uh, again, goes back to that just, you know, again, Biden was dead on Friday. And then the guy comes back, wins all these states, including Texas. But again, that vote Sanders had hoped for with the youth was not there. 15% of voters were between 17 and 29 compared to 20% in 16. So that's something that the Sanders campaign is going to have to address before the next round of votes. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have Senator John Bozeman on the line from Washington. 
Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. I'm J.R. Davis filling in for Dave Ellswick today. Dave is having surgery today, so our thoughts are with him uh, this morning. I'm really, really excited about our next guest, uh, a man that I have so much respect for, uh, our senior senator from Arkansas, calling us from D.C. this morning. A big vote later for uh, the Senate this morning after the House passed $8.3 billion in emergency funding for the coronavirus. Uh, Senator Bozeman, thanks for calling in this morning. No, thanks for having me, and I have a lot of respect for you, Jr. I've really enjoyed working with you here in Washington and in your capacity at the governor's office, and I know you love our state and uh, are a very thoughtful person. Be sure and uh, and and uh, tell Dave that we're thanking about him and praying for a speedy recovery. I sure will, and, and I appreciate you saying that, Senator. Um, well, sir, there's a lot going on in D.C., to say the least. I'm sure with everything that's happening uh, with the Democratic primary and then, of course, the coronavirus uh, right now, what are your thoughts on how the administration is handling uh, the coronavirus at this point in time? I think they're doing a good job. They've turned this over to to Vice President Pence, and uh, he is is what he's done is coordinated the medical professionals, which need to be the ones that are uh, pursuing this. Uh, working with Congress, uh, they've come up with a plan as far as funding. Uh, the House passed a bill that was almost eight billion dollars, seven point seven six seven, so about eight billion dollars. Uh, that will fund a variety of different issues, uh, things like developing the vaccine, uh, distributing, uh, continuing to, to make and distribute test kits, helping a little bit internationally. Uh, the vast, vast majority of this is, is for our country, but we don't want, we want to be helpful internationally because this affects the world economy and then certainly it affects travel to our country. So I, I think it's a good plan. Uh, there's been several hearings in Congress. I think it's thoughtful. And, and, and the important thing is it's not coming from politicians. It's coming from the health professionals. This certainly doesn't need to be a, a partisan issue. This is about protecting the people uh, you know, of our country. And about, uh, I think, uh, probably uh, $6.2 million at least will come to Arkansas and help, helping our health department. We're really blessed. We've got a great uh, health department in Arkansas. Uh, they're well-coordinated. They're talking to the providers. Uh, uh, the governor is doing a great job in, in, uh, in coordinating all of this in our state. So I think right now we're in pretty good shape. Yep. We just need to be very vigilant. This is a, is a it's truly a serious problem, and uh, we we need to do all that we can to to keep it from getting out of hand. No, absolutely. And, and Senator, you bring up a good point that this shouldn't be a partisan issue. Uh, reading the Democrat Gazette this morning, there there was a story obviously about uh, the the funding that was passed by the House, uh, and this actually almost feels like for the first time in a while the coronavirus, an issue that that is. Uh, 
so important and critical for us to pay attention to. It's kind of brought both sides together a little bit. I even saw some comments from Democrats praising Vice President Pence for the way that he has communicated the administration's effort on this issue. Is that kind of the, I mean, am I reading that wrong? Is that just an article or is that kind of the sense that, that, that the coronavirus truly has been, you know, with the exceptions of a few comments, uh, nonpartisan and, and something that has brought both sides together? No, I think you're exactly right. And, and you know, that's what America's all about. In times of crisis, we really do come together. And everyone understands this is much bigger than, than uh, any party politics. But I think what the administration has done a good job of, uh, Vice President Pence, is putting forward the health professionals, the people that are uh, running uh, the Center for Disease Control, uh, the NIH, these are not uh, politicians in any sense of the world. Word. Most of them have, have uh, served through multiple administrations. Uh, they're they're world-renowned, uh, and they are committed, to, again, to keeping us safe. I, I think one of the problems that we've had, J.R., is that uh, we've had some of these things in the past. Uh, if you remember the Zika virus, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Ebola threat and all of that, we've really done a very, very good job. And so it's it's hard for the public to imagine that we could get ourselves in a, in a difficult situation because we've contained these other threats. Uh, so we just need to continue to be vigilant and, and give empower the people that know the best, listen to them, and then give them the resources, uh, the money, uh, the materials that they need to go forward. On the other hand, I think it's important, and, and the vice president's insisted in this, is that we have a plan. Uh, as you know, with your time up here, and really even in, in state government agencies, many times things get siloed. People, Absolutely. Uh, that are working on a problem, uh, they're not talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, you lose effectiveness in that way. And so uh, I think everybody uh, is has come together, and uh, all of the different agencies, and there's several that that have a little piece of this, are talking together and uh, have come up with a good plan. One of the most important things we need to do is perfect, protect our health care providers. You have to have the the ability to give them the protective equipment uh, that they potentially could need. We can buy new stuff. We can buy materials. You can't replace a, a provider that gets mm-hmm. sick, you know, and goes down. So, That's a good point. Uh, you know, there's there's lots of nuances, you know, to all of this. But uh, the good news is there's lots of lots of thought and now lots of money that's going to be poured in to protect us. Absolutely, that's that's great news. And Senator uh, Senate expected to pass that measure later today. Um, yes. So that's that's great news for the nation. So basically, as we talk about you know things that are nonpartisan or bipartisan working together, now we're switching gears just a little bit. I just want to get your thoughts on the Democratic primary for president. Uh, this, quite frankly, I think everyone felt that Friday, you know, they were sort of throwing dirt on the casket of Joe Biden's campaign. And all of a sudden, you know, a, a few endorsements, a big win in South Carolina, and, and now he's the front runner again. That's one of the more interesting bumps in modern political history from a candidate that a lot of people counted out just, just a few days ago. 
It really is remarkable, Jr. And and you, and you had the situation before that, where you had the rise of Bernie Sanders, who uh, you know has always been uh, you know an independent and a uh, you know very proud of his his socialist tendencies. So for him to rise the way he did, that was remarkable. And, and as you point out, you know, you, you start discounting uh, Vice President Biden and all of a sudden, uh, you know, you just have a total reversal. Uh, it's polling is difficult these days. Uh, and, you know, I think you had a situation where you had a lot of people undecided, you know, trying to figure out uh, what they felt like was best for the country. And, and, you know, we always have to remember Democrats, Republicans, these are, you know, these are, these are Americans that uh, you can disagree with them, but they themselves, you know, feel like uh, whatever direction that they're taking is the best thing to do. So I think there's a lot of undecided, but it really was remarkable that the switch, we'll have to see what happens in Michigan and some places like that. Uh, the other thing that was remarkable is, in fact, uh, one of my, uh, 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 ladies that works for me, her son was uh, doing this. You know, Mike is uh, Bloomberg had a commercial that something to the effect, you know, Mike is Mike is vote for Mike, you know, or whatever. He was chanting this because it's been on television so much in the the Washington D.C. Maryland area, and we saw the same thing at home. You know, this is a guy that spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, really got absolutely nothing in return. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know that anybody, you know, that he was going to be the savior, and yet that didn't pan out either. So uh, it's it's uh, there's going to be a lot of books written uh, <laughs> by the time this thing is over yeah. uh, regarding the the politics of it. A lot of political scientists now are are uh, really uh, feeling, uh, you know. Uh, empowered in the sense they're going to have a lot to talk about. Oh my goodness, you could take any number of these candidates in this race and have plenty uh, yeah. to look over. Well, Senator, I know you've got to go, and I'll say this, if, if every state had a senator uh, like our senior senator, uh, John Bozeman, we'd be in much better shape. I appreciate you taking time <laughs> well, today and, and uh, just visiting with us for a little bit. No, thank you so much for having me as always. And again, uh, be sure and tell uh, Dave that we're thinking about him and uh, praying for a speedy recovery. Thank you so much, Senator. I sure will. Good to speak thank with you. you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That was our senior Senator John Bozeman calling us from Washington, D.C. They'll have a big vote later this morning to pass uh, the measure that was uh, the funding that was passed yesterday from the House, $8 billion in emergency funding for the coronavirus. Interesting to hear him talk a little bit about uh, the primary as well. There are, he brings up a really good point. Uh, when, you're, when you're talking about sort of political scientists and the different candidates, this, is, this really has been an interesting race uh, and a lot of sort of test cases for one. You know, you got a billionaire who spent $500 million dollars uh, to try to basically <clears throat> buy the race. Uh, and b- what he came up with was one win in America, Samoa, and and then a bunch of third-place finishes. Not what he was looking for. Now, granted, uh, Bloomberg, $500 million. To me, that's a lot of money. I wouldn't want to spend that for third-place finishes. But uh, as I was reminded yesterday on Twitter, that's just a drop in the bucket for a guy worth $64 billion. So, uh, So there's that. Man, $64 billion. It's just so much money. 
but there's that there's that uh, test case to figure out okay well obviously you got to perform on the debate stage you got to be a little more personable uh, and prepared than Mike Bloomberg was that'll be interesting to look into and then of course just the the stunning comeback uh, from Joe Biden which uh, we'll continue to have to see if if that will continue uh, if Joe will shoot himself in the foot like he tends to do from time to time. Uh, will Bernie's youth vote finally emerge as we get into some of these other states? There's just a lot to look at. So the senator brought up a really, really good point in that. I really appreciate him taking time this morning. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we get back, um, uh, we will have a, a few guests in the studio. Um, this is the Dave Ellswick Show. It's 48 degrees outside, 719. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is J.R. Davis filling in for Dave this morning. We just finished up with an interview with uh, Senator John Bozeman. Now I'm joined in studio with Governor Hutchinson's communications team, uh, Communications Director Katie Beck and Deputy Communications Director Chelsea O'Kelly. Bright and early this morning. Thank you all for coming out. Great to be with you, Jr. Yeah, how's and, it going? And, and f- good. Well, it's a lot less lonelier, uh, lonely <laughs> since you guys got here. It was just me and Zach. We were just talking back and forth. I'd read a few things. We'd go to break. It was so sad. So now I feel a whole lot better that I've actually got people in the studio to talk with. So what's going on with you guys? How's life? Life is good. Life is good. Yeah, life is life has been busy this week. Lots of news Lots came of, down the pipe this week. Yeah, Zach. Okay, you guys got a little bit closer to the mic. There you go. Um, yeah, lots of news this week. Tuesday, big night in Arkansas. Not a lot of races, but some very interesting races. We were talking about this earlier. Uh, the Keith Brooks, R.J. Hawk race, back and forth all the way to like 1130. There's going to be a recount with that. Uh, the Marietta McClure, Tony Furman race. You know, Marietta was the front runner. All of a sudden, Tony Furman just blows her out of the water. It's ridiculous. But on the national scene... Uh, Big night for Democrats. Big night for Joe Biden. I'm just interested in y'all's take on that. I mean, this guy was literally, I keep saying this all morning, not to beat a dead horse here, but they were you know, throwing dirt on the guy's campaign coffin and all, on Friday. Then he wins in South Carolina. Now he's the front runner. He's winning states like Texas, and it's just crazy. What a comeback. Yeah. I mean, like, biggest comeback in modern polit- political history. I really feel that way. I mean, the guy, what, he got fourth and fifth in Iowa, then New Hampshire, uh, and then got like a second-place finish in Nevada, but it was still such a huge gap between first and second, and he was just left for dead. I mean, the other candidates were were kind of mocking him for all of his political gaffes, for just the, the um, lack of finesse in the things that he was saying, and I think that it's really a, a demonstration of how that doesn't really come into play as much as it used to in politics. I mean, look at President Trump and some of the things that um, he's misspoken, he's misstated. And, you know, it doesn't make a difference. People care about policy. People aren't that interested in socialism, um, even on the, you know, on the left, Mm -hmm. um, except for very, very far left. And so I think we saw that demonstrated um, just nationally, but also in the state with the sweep of Biden across Arkansas, except for Washington County. Yeah, yeah, it was really, really interesting, and particularly, there's there's some parallels to 2016 with the Republican primaries and what's happening now with the Democratic primaries. The problem was, in 2016, the candidates didn't want to get out and coalesce around you know someone that wasn't Trump. I'm a little surprised at how quickly it happened with the Democrats. I think they saw the writing on the wall that, you know, if they didn't, Sanders was going to have an insurmountable delegate lead, but uh, 
but I've just never seen anything. Look, the Democrats over the course of the last four years have made every possible mistake. Uh, you know, just I mean, seriously, just trying to, you know, find a candidate to run against Trump. You've got Congress who can't stop talking about impeachment, finally went through with it. They just didn't make a lot of smart strategy decisions moving into 2020. But then finally, all of a sudden, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if like Obama's back there, like, you know, like the puppeteer trying to make sure people are doing what they need to be doing. You know, it just seems like there's just chaos with the Democratic Party. But then all of a sudden, boom, they coalesce around one candidate. A guy who was literally dead. A shocking Friday. candidate. A yeah. shocking candidate. I mean, we literally kept saying, it was like, it wasn't going to be, Biden comes in, Biden's going to be the front runner. Biden can't put two words together in a debate. It's terrible. So let's go with, you know, any other candidate. None of those work out. Maybe Pete Buttigieg. That's not going to work out. Bloomberg's going to be our savior. Bloomberg spends $500 that million. Dude dollars. spent so much money. How in the world do you go from not going, not participating in a debate spending all this money on all these apparent like incredible advisors people that know what they're doing and you're not prepared for a debate where you know you're going to get at least two questions one with your non-disclosure agreements that you've signed and the sexual harassment allegations and that's the the first one uh and and then the uh issue with stop uh, and frisk, stop and frisk. Yeah. you knew the questions were coming and it's like he was surprised he got them is unbelievable but that guy's campaign was short-lived, and so now everybody comes back to Joe Biden. Good old Uncle Joe. He's just always there. He's always there. The guy who could not win a primary in three tries as a presidential candidate before, after 30 years, finally wins his first in South Carolina, and now it's off to the races. I'm just, it's just hard to keep up with almost. I think I saw something about how Bloomberg spent Seventy-eight million dollars in California, and Biden spent four thousand for on their campaign. Yeah. The sheer gap between that is is insane. Bloomberg spent so much mm-hmm. money, and I really I wondered if he would have more of a foothold in Arkansas. But I was shocked to see that he didn't because he had come here quite mm-hmm. a few times. Three, yeah, three times. Yeah. So, KB, what do you think about uh, where we are in a race right now? I mean. First of all, are you surprised by, you know, kind of Democrats coming full circle back to Joe Biden after nothing else seemed to work out? You know, I'm not. I think right now we're down to a two-person race. You have Biden and you have Sanders. And I really think that uh, it's going – no, no one's surprised about – oh, I'm not surprised about yeah. uh, Biden's comeback. Uh, and I, I think it's going to come down to the youth vote. And from what we saw Tuesday – I'm, I, I don't That's know if Sanders can, uh, can overcome that. That's a very good point. Uh, we're going to talk about this. Uh, we've got Governor Hutchinson coming up uh, uh, after this break. We're going to visit with him, and then we're going to talk about that youth vote. You bring up a very good point. It was abysmal, uh, but we'll be back and talk about it in just a second. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is J.R. Davis filling in for Dave this morning. It is 736 and 48 degrees outside. Uh, it has been a busy 24, 48 hours for our next guest. I'm honored to be joined by Governor Hutchinson by phone this morning. Governor, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to visit with me this morning. JR, it's uh, always good to be with you on the Dave Ellswick Show. I mean, it's kind of it's it's kind of nice because, you know, you're my former boss and now I'm interviewing you. It's a little bit different. 
Oh, you're establishing uh, all of the uh, rules of engagement. Uh, make sure everybody <laughs> knows that. <laughs> uh, well, Gov- we uh, miss you in the governor's office. You're our communications director there and uh, in the private sector now. And now you're a voice on the radio. That's right. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to, you know, figure out what I'm actually good at so I can stick around for a little bit longer. <laughs> uh, well, Governor, you've had a. Uh, crazy couple of days just you know here and there and everywhere you had the the governor's conference on tourism in fort smith on election night uh you were back in little rock wednesday morning to go over to present your budget to the joint budget committee um with the legislature and then of course you visited with political animals yesterday to kind of dissect what we saw tuesday night let's start with your budget uh can you walk us through some of the highlights of what you proposed to the legislature yesterday well, it's a balanced budget uh, that uh, also provides us with a uh, surplus. We're actually budgeting in extra funds. We're not spending it all. And so the budget shows the slowest growth in about eight years in terms of increase in spending. It's only 1.5% increase. And then it sets aside, I believe it's $40 million for our restricted reserve account. So we're not spending it. We're putting in a savings account that can't be touched except without the concurrence of the governor and the uh, General Assembly. So it's for future tax cuts. It's for emergency uh, uh, times that we might have. And so those that's a highlight. Now, what we also did, though, was uh, we do have a backup in our county jails once again of uh, state prisoners that are awaiting space. And so uh, we uh, spent uh, or putting uh, money in the budget for $2.6 million for uh, new beds in community corrections that will allow us to relieve that pressure from our counties, uh, that will increase our public uh, safety investment and and uh, make the system work better. So that was a necessity to do. We're fully funding education, of course, uh, making sure that we're meeting the requirements of uh, quality education across Arkansas. Uh, it's a good budget. It's a conservative budget. It uh, constrains spending. I did sound a warning that uh, you know, we are going to uh, have some increased costs in Medicaid uh, down the road that we mm-hmm. have to be prepared for. I, I do think it's interesting when you – you point out yesterday, it was in the paper this morning, when you talk about the fact that you know 1.5% growth is the lowest rate of growth uh, in years in state government, it's a big deal, especially when you factor in, you know, when we talk about the three big budget items that take up most of the budget with education, you know, public safety, uh, Medicaid, health care. Uh, that's a really important number for people to understand that when you're growing at that low of a rate, uh, that's a... That's, uh, solid, you know, fiscal responsibility. Uh, Governor, I wanted to hit, go ahead. Well, I just uh, second your point that, you know, the big budget items are public safety, which are prisons. And naturally, as you grow as a state, that goes up a little bit. Education, we're continually want to invest money in education. And so that's going to go up. Uh, And then you uh, have uh, the other regular needs of the budget and uh, you know, that's uh, naturally where we try to control it. But we're delighted with that uh, slow growth. Uh, it reflects the important work that we've done in transformation of uh, making it more efficient in state government. Something that people may not quite understand is the reserve fund. When you talk about the long-term reserve, this is something that's been really important to you. Uh, and you talk about, you know, 
potential future uh, tax cuts or, uh, you know, in a downturn in the economy, kind of explain to folks how important this long-term reserve fund is for the state and not just for a rainy day type situation, but for the bond rating for the state as well. Well, uh, absolutely. And we've had a habit in Arkansas government uh, long before I became governor that we would project our revenues and then we would spend all of our revenues. And so year after year, we did not accumulate any savings. Well, any family knows that that puts you in jeopardy if you lose a job or the economy goes down, uh, you could be in trouble real quick. And so working with the legislature, we created this long-term reserve fund, and we started out with $100 million in that. That's gradually grown to over $150 million. But even with that, uh, they measure the adequacy of our savings account for a state based upon how long you can exist with your reserve. We need to be able to grow that uh, some more so that we can reduce our bond rating, which saves us on interest costs uh, for the state on some of our bonds. So uh, it's just a long-term goal that we have. But, you know, as we manage the budget, people need to understand we're not spending everything. We're trying to put money in savings as well. You can see the governor's breakdown in the budget in uh, this morning's Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Governor, we're going to switch gears like you had to yesterday, going from joint budget uh, to political animals club. We had a very interesting Tuesday night here in Arkansas uh, from you know the Democratic presidential race where we saw Joe Biden have a spectacular night. But we had a lot of interesting races here in Arkansas, local and, of course, the one statewide race with uh, the Supreme Court. I just want to get your take. What were some of the takeaways? Uh, you shared a little bit of this at the mansion yesterday, political animals, but but what, what are some of your takeaways? What's your biggest takeaway, I guess I should say, from Tuesday night? Well, I mean, the big storyline uh, is the uh, victory of Barbara Webb winning the uh, Arkansas Supreme Court uh, judgeship. Uh, that was, uh, you know, a tough race for her, but she won that. It was a very uh, well-run campaign. Uh, but then, you know, the, the other races other than the presidential campaign were primarily the legislative seats that uh, were on the ballot. And I don't think that they had a particular theme this year. There were a lot of local issues that mm-hmm. dominated it or the personality or, or uh, you know, just the uniqueness of the individual race, which is somewhat traditional in uh, local races. But uh, we had some good candidates that were elected across the state. As governor, of course, I look at it, and how is the uh, election going to change the makeup of the uh, General Assembly? Mm -hmm. And it's certainly going to continue in a conservative path, but we have some uh, new members that uh, are going to have to be brought up to to speed on things. But uh, I think, uh, you know, I've I've been on the losing side, and uh, there were a lot of happy faces, but a few frowns uh, on election night, and that's uh, typical. It was a very, very interesting night. Like, again, not much going on uh, in the state, but there were a lot of those, as you mentioned, local races that uh, came down to just a few votes. And it's kind of funny. It's cliche. I know everyone says, you know, every vote counts. But it seems like the last couple of cycles in Arkansas, every vote does count. Well, it does. We had some very close races. And, of course, we had a special election about two weeks ago in which the uh, deciding vote was an absentee ballot that came from Sweden. And so yeah. uh, every, every vote does count, and uh, and we should be reminded that there's going to be a couple runoffs, 
but then the general election uh, is going to be important for these candidates and the direction of our state as well. Presidential campaign was certainly interesting. Uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden had a, an amazing uh, 48 hours yeah. and led into Super Tuesday and came out with momentum. But there'll be a lot of ups and downs in that race as well. I'm going to ask you about that. So am, am I overblowing the Biden situation in that I can't remember someone who basically on Friday, you know, people were, were done with Joe. He's probably going to win South Carolina, but how much? He's no longer the front runner. And then within a period of 48 hours, he's the front runner again and the delegate count leader until California comes in. Uh, that's right. And uh, I think it was an amazing, uh, probably historic 48 hours uh, that turned uh, a candidate from uh, being uh, on the uh, forget list almost <laughs> and moving him in to the front runner status. But what that tells you is that, uh, you know, it could swing again. And so uh, particularly with Joe Biden, I think there's a lot of unpredictability there. People are, even though he's been on the stage for a long time, they're still starting to now think about him as a presidential candidate and how he would shape up against uh, President Trump. Uh, And Bernie Sanders is not going to go away. He's going to stay in this fight uh, all the way to the convention. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm on the Republican side, just watching the Democrat (laughs) side, but it certainly is interesting. And to me, it goes to show that we made a good decision by moving our primary to March 3. Mm-hmm. So we joined the other Super Tuesday states, and we've had a number of candidates coming here. We're, so we are participating in that presidential campaign, which I think is exciting for the Arkansas voters. Governor, last thing, and I'll let you get out of here. You're not on the ballot this year, but there is uh, a very important initiative that is on the ballot. That's issue one. We're talking about uh, continuing the half-cent sales tax for you know, roads, bridges, highways. Uh, that's really important to you. Uh, it's important to the people of Arkansas and, of course, making sure that we are able uh, to continue to uh, maintain uh, our highways in this state. It means a lot to the economy um, and, quite frankly, it just means a lot to commuters on an everyday basis. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the importance of Issue 1 and, and how involved you're going to be uh, moving forward on this. Well, this will be my primary focus in terms of campaigning for this fall. This is so critical to the future of our state uh, to be able to accommodate our growth, to make sure that we can have adequate and maintain our roads. And uh, and we have to remember that this is not a new tax. This is an extension of an existing half-cent sales tax that's already going to roads. We want it to continue to go to roads. But this is really foundational for our future Uh, I think that it's in pretty good shape because I figure that everybody who's hit a pothole as they drive to work (laughs) will vote for this, and uh, that's going to give you a lot of voters. That's right. So, And and that's really what it comes down to, that simplistic explanation that we want our roads to be well-maintained, safe for everyone, but also uh, to make our quality of life better in Arkansas so we can get to work in a safe fashion and that's what this uh, issue one's about and governor hutchinson hey, governor thank you so much there's no one i respect more in the state than you i appreciate you taking a few moments and uh visiting with me this morning in a very different capacity so <laughs> jr great to be with you and i hope everybody has a great day all right thanks sir governor hutchinson uh weighing in on just a few items there we talked about his budget 
which again, and I'm back with Katie and Chelsea, it's pretty astounding that 1.5% growth in a budget that's as large as you know the state budget, uh, I think a lot of people always wonder why can't you cut the budget it's difficult, obviously, with those three big areas, with education, public safety, and especially with Medicaid. It's, it just continues to grow. And that's not an Arkansas problem. That's a national problem. But the fact that the governor was able to get that to 1.5% growth, the slowest since 2007, uh, that's really, really impressive. It is. And it's, it's conservative governing, and it's being fiscally responsible uh, with, with our state budget. And what we saw an increase from uh, thirty dollars per day uh, to thirty-two for the county jail reimbursement. I mean, we're we are uh, focusing on public safety, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. education, uh, and and like I said, being fiscally responsible with uh, the taxpayers of Arkansas's money. Yeah, it's a really really big deal, and that's why I think that the listeners just need to understand that when you can when you can do something that I mean, essentially, uh, as you mentioned with uh, some of the public safety aspects, but that it's a one and a half percent growth when you're considering Medicaid as mm-hmm. well. That is such a, a, a huge deal. So hopefully listeners understand uh, the importance of that. Uh, if you could like bottle Asa Hutchinson's energy and sell it, I think you could make fortune. I'm Absolutely. just saying, I mean, the guy goes from <laughs> one event to the next and it just cracked me up that, you know, he was in Fort Smith on Tuesday night. He's presenting his budget on Wednesday morning, he goes from there, switches gears, goes to political animals, and weighs in on a completely different topic. He's just all over the place, which is great. But I just don't, man. I'm, I just his schedule wears me out. I'm not even there anymore. <laughs> he has a packed schedule, and I think that um, I correct me if I'm wrong. I think every morning when he wakes up, he does jumping jacks and push-ups. Yeah. First thing when he rolls out of bed, and uh, yeah. just that energy is <laughs> he, impressive. Is in better shape. I'm 34 years old. He's in better shape than I'll probably ever be. Uh, he plays basketball every Friday. They do full court. I haven't played in a while, which uh, I feel bad about. But it, full court basketball. Every I cannot tell you how many people have been injured playing these Friday basketball games. We've had knee injuries, ankle injuries. I mean, bloody faces. But Governor Hutchinson continues to. Uh, go through every single Friday unscathed in better shape uh, than uh, than any of us. So anyway, it's interesting. Uh, we got to take a, a really quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to hit on uh, a couple of more points the governor spoke about, and then we're going to hit on that youth vote. We'll be right back. Uh, it's 101 The Answer, Dave Ellswick. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is J.R. Davis filling in for Dave this morning. It is 755, 48 degrees outside. It's been 48. I wonder if this thing's working. It's been 48 degrees since I got here at like 530. Uh, I am joined by uh, Katie Beck, Director of Communications for Governor Hutchinson and Deputy Director of Communications, uh, Chelsea O'Kelly. We've covered a lot of things this morning. We've hit on a lot of things. I'm laughing because they're talking about what Schumer said yesterday about Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and the guy if you haven't heard heard it he sounds deranged it's crazy anyway we'll talk about that later with John and Rhett so um so one thing we saw from Super Tuesday that was just really interesting to me is in 2016 Bernie Sanders so much of you know his uh, ground game was the youth vote right uh, he had a lot of it they were excited they show up in throngs to his uh, rallies but what happened on Super Tuesday is they didn't show up. Uh, I think they were down across the board 3 to 4% in every single state. Voter participation in youth between, I believe, they have 17 to 29 years of age 
was uh, 13%. And, and so, I mean, that, that's going to have a pretty drastic effect uh, on a Sanders campaign who really is kind of built on excitement in that youth vote. Uh, what did you guys see on Super Tuesday as far as, you know, the youth vote goes? No, I, I agree with you, Jr. I think I saw something yesterday that Sanders fared worse uh, on Tuesday uh, than he did in 2016 when you turn, talk about mm-hmm. voter turnout in his home state. Uh, I think there was 11 percent uh, of voters under 30 uh, compared to t- 2016 where there were 15 percent. So I, and I, you're he's getting them out to the rally still, but uh, that, that mm-hmm. turnout is not, not translating no. into anything. That's what's so interesting to me. You're right. 11 percent in Vermont compared to 15 percent when he ran against Clinton. That's down the list. I'm going to run through these really quickly. Alabama was 10 percent down from 14. It was down uh, 2 percent in North Carolina at 14 percent. South Carolina uh, down uh, 4 percent from 15 to 11. Tennessee was at 11. Virginia was at 13. I mean, we're seeing sort of a drastic fall. What was really interesting, too, is in Texas – that's Chelsea, Chelsea O'Kelly's <laughs> native state, which she reminded me of like every day when I worked in the governor's office. Um, but Texas, that was huge. I mean, Texas was it was 20 percent in 2016. It was 15 uh, on Super Tuesday. That's pretty fascinating. It is fascinating. I was watching Texas pretty closely. Uh, no. no bias there. No. <laughs> Shocking. Um, no, it, it was fascinating. I think that um, Bernie Sanders has really kind of pigeonholed his um his constituency and really put all all of his eggs in one basket with the young voter turnout um and he really he lost a lot of other demographics i think i saw that in minnesota sanders only won 25 percent of the vote um with women and so he just really relied very heavily on the young vote and it, i mean i was wrong if you would have asked me i would have said that young voters were um were coming that that mm-hmm. um they you know just nationally young voters are really riled up and ready to come out and come to the polls and i would have been wrong um obviously they didn't show out and um bernie sanders suffered yeah and the youth vote i mean that's why we, you know, remember when the youth vote 17 to 29 is just an unreliable vote and this is the reason why you would expect for them to uh, actually you know, show up for Bernie Sanders, and they didn't. And I think for Biden, what we're seeing too is there's a floor. He, what we saw in South Carolina with you know the black vote, they support him, they know Joe, they feel comfortable with Joe, and and that's happening throughout these other states as well. You've got older white men who support Joe. You've got suburban voters that are supporting Joe. Uh, it's starting to finally coalesce around one candidate, which. And this is for another time we can talk about, but uh, it's it's interesting to see how that's going to play out in the general because I don't think that's the candidate that uh, President Trump necessarily wants to go up against. So, but you guys don't want to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is interesting. I think you can see, um, I think you can see the the renewed confidence with the Dow. Um, I mean, yeah, there there's some some of that going on. Hey, as long as the economy does well i think trump will do well in the general but we will see we will be right back on the dave ellswick show thank you all so much for joining me i appreciate it good to be with you
Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show on this Thursday morning. It is just after 8 o'clock, 8.07, 49 degrees. It is working, Zach. It finally ticked up from 48 degrees. Uh, I am joined now by uh, two of my partners in the Gilmore Strategy Group firm, John Gilmore and Rhett Hatcher. Uh, All of us have spent some time with Governor Hutchinson uh, on his staff. Uh, John was the governor's deputy chief of staff um, in his first term uh, before uh, getting out and starting Gilmore Strategy Group. Rhett was the governor's budget director as well as uh, director of legislative affairs, spent some time as deputy at teacher retirement. Um, And so we're all together. I left the governor's office back in October as communications director to join these guys. Um, Just giving a little bit of background there. So, John, why don't you start it off? Just tell people a little bit about what we do from the polling and the lobbying side. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, JR, for that introduction. And it's good to be on 101.1 The Answer. Um, and uh, thank you a lot of Dave and appreciate him turning over the desk to you today. Um, yeah, John Gilmore here uh, started Gilmore Strategy Group uh, coming up on four years ago um, after leaving Governor Hutchinson's office as his deputy chief of staff, uh, ran his campaign for governor as his campaign manager. And uh, kind of took some past experiences into the firm. Uh, one was as a pollster. Um, I lived and worked in Washington, D.C. for about seven years. And five of those spent uh, polling races for governors, senators, and U.S. congressmen uh, in nearly all 50 states. And so one of the things that I wanted to do when we left the governor's office was uh, add opinion research uh, to our firm. And we currently do more um polls in Arkansas for clients than just about any other polling firm in the country. Uh, we have more data um, that we're looking at daily for clients uh, on the underlying shifts and in, in, in the political um, areas of the state. And, you know, it's been a good addition to the to the to the firm and it's good to be back in, in the polling business. Um, we also added, you know, after a um, brief stint out of the governor's office, um, started a lobbying practice. So we represent a myriad of uh, corporate interests and also nonprofits um, before the legislature and the executive branch. We probably have between 25 and 30 lobbying clients, and those include um, big tech companies like Microsoft and Dell, but also um, the Arkansas Pharmacists Association, uh, some infrastructure clients, healthcare. And uh, we've kind of set ourselves apart, I think, in Little Rock in our lobbying practice as having a... Uh, specialty in, in information technology and healthcare, mm-hmm. and so uh, it's been a good run. And uh, thrilled to have um, added Rhett as a partner a um, little over a year ago, and then Jr. is now a part of the firm uh, as of this last um, October. And so we've grown every year, and uh, I think the uh, the best is yet to come. That's great. Thanks for kind of walking us through that. Now, Rhett, Rhett's the the beautiful mind behind. Uh, the elections. Uh, actually, I have learned a ton from Brett uh, just over the last couple of months as we've fired up. We had, what, nine candidates going into Tuesday night? Yes, that's right. Uh, and so, you know, as, as you know, Brett is, you know, we look at different lists, um, you know, who we send mail to, walk lists, that sort of thing, what we need to do. Um, kind of talk a little bit about what we do for candidates in, in these elections. And I will say, look, just as, as a, a selfish promotion deal, we were uh, nine for nine on Tuesday night. Now two of them are in a runoff, uh, sure. but but pretty impressive night. Yeah, especially when you consider that uh, a lot of our almost every race we ran that was a non-incumbent race, our candidates were outspent mm-hmm. uh, by their opponents. So <clears throat> a lot of what uh, we do when we 
uh, get engaged in a political race is set a reality check with the candidate. And that is that uh, this race is actually not about you getting up and saying uh, flowery things to voters. This thing really comes down to two things, fundraising and then taking that fundraising and uh, communicating a very succinct message, which obviously you, your talent is in helping us shape that message to the voters. And uh, that comes in two very uh, unsexy uh, <laughs> ways of delivering that message. One is doing the door-to-door, and the second is uh, through the mail. And uh, I, so I think the most important thing, again, that we do is we kind of let the candidate know you have a perception of how this race is going to go. And, and through our you know over 15 years' experience, um, we we know how, how we win these races and, and – we don't have to have the most money. We don't have to have the most dynamic candidate. We don't have to have, uh, um, you know, all these uh, bells and whistles. Uh, we just have to have a candidate that's willing to work hard. Yeah. And then we have to have a uh, uh, a good game plan based on the district. And, you know, to Rhett's point, we talk about two things, the, the fundraising uh, and then the hard work. And I think, and look, I do too. I think the same thing, you know, as, as sort of a, prospective candidate you know when they they come and visit with us i think there's this idea of of sort of grandeur and and you're going to get up there and give this incredible speech somewhere to someone who really cares right and then it's just and you're gonna have a following it's just sort of the sexy side of of running for office but it really comes down to fundraising and working hard and what we saw tuesday night uh were uh you know candidates that we worked with who were willing to put in the work. And we talk about, you know, John, your brother, Ben, down in uh, South Arkansas, ran that race against uh, Bill Dunklin. And, you know, Ben did a great job uh, raising funds, making those connections early. Uh, But he also got out there and knocked doors. I think it was over 1,500 doors in rural Arkansas, which is not easy to do. And the same thing with Keith Brooks, a guy who was outspent, uh, outmailed, but he got there and he knocked doors, and and that's such a critical part that mm-hmm. if you're willing to put in the work, that's often sometimes the, the 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 uh, that's what happens is you'll see these wins because someone actually gets out there and is willing to take three hours a day mm-hmm. and knock doors. Yeah, it's so and it's so different too when you look at a statewide race, a congressional race, and then you look at the legislative races. You know, the statewide and the congressional race, it really becomes a a dollars race and how much money you can put on the big airways, mm-hmm. radio, television. And it is a lot of hard work there as well, but it's also a lot of hard work to make sure you've got the money in the bank to be able to, you know, compete and get that message out. When you get to these legislative races and you get down the ticket, down even to JP and, and, and you know, countywide races, um, it is a lot about door-to-door, a mm-hmm. lot about a good, you know, strategic mail plan, but, you know, just a lot of old-fashioned hard work and, and making sure that you get out there and do the retail politics day in and day out and and you know having that integrity and that trust with the voter i'm what i'm interested in and brett is sort of the um after action report right to kind of dive into these numbers a little bit because it's 2020 arkansas is not necessarily every other state we're very rural we're kind of behind the times a little bit with technology but i imagine that has to be something that you know you have to continue to look at is is how are you how are we targeting people differently now than maybe from the last election cycle oh yeah no doubt about it and of course you know the one tried true uh message of communication people still check their mail every day and so uh you know that you can send a 
piece of mail to someone's house and you know who lives there and you know what their voting history is. And so uh, still that's for the foreseeable future going to be the most effective way. But you're right. I mean, you think about digital, uh, you think about how radio is evolving. You think about, um, you know, used to newspapers were pretty cost effective mm-hmm. way of getting your message out. Now maybe a little more limited. And those things have changed in the last 10 years. Uh, not to mention how they're going to change. And, and so you are trying to stay ahead of the curve. Uh, but, you know, ultimately I do think a lot of times candidates get focused on how they're delivering the message and less about the message. And I think one of the things that we did this last session across uh, last election cycle across uh, the platform with our candidates is we gave a very real visceral message and so even though our candidates got outspent the message that got delivered mm-hmm. was one of you know hey we're pro-life and here's what that means to us uh, we are pro second amendment and here's what that means to us and we support president trump and here's how we can do that at a state level and you know we see that religious liberty is under attack every day here's who's attacking religious liberty here's what we can do at the state level and and so you're, you know, you're trying to increase your candidate's name ID, but at the same time, when they get that piece of mail out of the mailbox, they need to yeah. have an emotional reaction to that to latch on to your candidate. And I think, you know, again, I think that's where, uh, you know, the nitty gritty of this is we three sit down around our conference table and we do the hard work. We spend an hour, hour and a half thinking about every individual mail piece yep. for a candidate and we all three have different perspectives and we go back and forth and then we put the product out for the candidate. They make some adjustments to it and then we send it out to the voter. And sometimes we hit and sometimes we miss, but throughout the campaign, we're trying to deliver a message that yeah. our candidates are consistent conservatives. It's exactly. And, and it's thoughtful too. I think you mentioned, you know, hour, hour and a half going through each mail piece. The, the idea is this, look, you've heard the saying, you got about eight seconds from the mailbox to the trash can you want to give the voter something that cuts through the clutter because they're getting other mail pieces, something they can see that's appealing to the eye, that has a simple message that resonates with them. Um, and I think that's really what we're <clears throat> what we're able to do uh, as a firm, which I think we saw a lot of that success Tuesday night. The other thing that's interesting, too, when we talk about sort of uh, all the different changes in technology and how you reach voters um, that's difficult to keep up with, but also it's funny because you also deal with, with candidates who hear from people they <clears throat> work with or their neighbors that say, Hey, you're not in the paper or Hey, you're not on the radio. And that might not be the best way to spend that money because right. a lot of these candidates have very limited resources. So that's also kind of a, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a song and dance that you want to make sure that, Hey, don't, don't bow to necessarily the pressures that you're getting from, you know, your colleagues or whatever to do. Right family members to to spend the money you don't necessarily need to spend the thing we have to convince voters of is, i mean the, the candidates we have to treat them really like a racehorse we have to put the blinders on them mm-hmm. we have to let them know that uh they are uh focused on running the race and kind of let us be the jockey and steer you in the right direction and just block everything else out <clears throat> yeah well and I'll just i'll add to that i mean we call it a lot of times <clears throat> filling the buckets you know, yep. when you look at a campaign statewide or local, um, there's certain buckets that you've got to fill before you move on. And, you know, one of those is voter contact. Make sure that that bucket is fully f- funded 
and then you can move on to other things. And you know, when you listen to your your supporters, you know, folks are trying to help you by saying, "Hey, I didn't see you in the newspaper. I didn't see your billboard, or we needed more yard yep. signs here." But at the end of the day, keep the priorities the priorities, and make sure that the money actually gets spent a hundred percent out there as much as you can on voter contact yeah you want to make sure that every dollar you spend is reaching someone in some way and there's a a use for it okay so we kind of we kind of dived into a little bit to you know what we do as a firm what we do with some of these elections we're going to take a quick break when we come back i want to dive into some of the elections from tuesday what we saw some of the interesting ones some of the surprising results and the ones that are still uh in limbo we'll talk about that uh, on the dave ellswick show right after this break Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is J.R. Davis. Dave is uh, undergoing surgery this morning, so our thoughts are with him. Uh, I've had a lot of fun this morning. Three hours goes by really, really fast. Uh, it's also you kind of feel a little crazy from 6 to 7 you're just talking to yourself. But anyway, you guys are here now. Uh, joined by Gilmore Strategy Group, uh, John Gilmore, Red Hatcher. We're talking about uh, kind of what we do as a firm, but also the importance of you know kind of a campaign strategy we had about nine candidates we had we had nine candidates uh running tuesday night all of them won or got into a runoff it was a very successful night for for our our folks um but there's a lot that goes into it right now i want to go ahead and talk about some of the results that we saw on tuesday night and and what y'all's takeaway was for some of them there were there weren't a lot um but the ones we followed were extremely interesting um, specifically in the Saline West Pulaski uh, County areas, Rhett, what are your thoughts on uh, wh- what was your biggest surprise of the night? I think the number one takeaway for me was how consistent across the board the conservative candidate either won or came in first place mm-hmm. heading into a runoff, and that's from the Supreme Court down to the most local of races. Um, and some incumbents lost who were painted as not conservative. Some uh, and all the challengers who ran as the more conservative generally won, uh, including some uh, that mm-hmm. uh, you think about the uh, race in Benton, city of Benton. Um, that that went to the more conservative mm-hmm. candidate. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was um, look. One, I was thrilled that you know we now have a new Supreme Court justice in 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 Barbara Womack Webb. Um, we were delighted to run her campaign for um, Supreme Court. And uh, I think that at the end of the day, you know, I heard from a lot of folks in the legal community, the trial bar that um, I think we're, we're leaning towards uh, Judge Welch. But, um, you know, we hammered home a message with Barbara of integrity and respect and what she would bring in impartiality to the bench. And it resonated with voters. And that wasn't just targeting Republicans. We targeted, I mean, everybody tries to paint this as some type of a, you know, she ran a partisan race and absolutely is not the case. I mean, we we mailed um, to Democrat and Republican, you know, likely voters. And if you look at her results, she won Jefferson County. She won Jefferson she County. She won Phillips County. And she, uh, and she only lost yeah, Pulaski. She almost won Pulaski. And, uh, and so, you know, that to me was just a huge, huge victory um, for the for the Supreme Court. And I uh, look forward to having her on the bench. Um you know, we talked about South Arkansas. Um, you know, one that's close to me is my brother Ben is running for state senate against the Democrat incumbent, um, and you know he had a primary and uh, won that by a little less than two hundred votes. But uh, Ben worked hard and uh, at the end of the day, you know, prevailed. And you know he's going to have a race this November, 
against uh, Senator Cheatham down in, in Crossit. But, you know, overall it was a incredibly exciting night. And then if you look nationally, um, I mean, we'll, we, I think we're going to get into that here a little bit later. Yeah. But, um, you know, just again, just really exciting Yeah, we can results. get into it now. We'll just kind of throw it all together. I think the to me the takeaway was, uh, I agree with you, it was the margin in which Barbara won. Because this is the first real test case in Arkansas where we mm-hmm. have a candidate running against someone with judge in front of their name. And we all thought, really, Tuesday morning, we, f- we felt good, but we weren't quite sure how mm-hmm. that was going to play. Uh, the fact that, you know, when the first numbers came out, she had a lead and then she never lost it. Uh, right. And it continued to, to creep up. That is really interesting. The governor yesterday at Political Animals had a good line where he felt like, you know, moving forward, every, you know, judicial candidate is going to have to change their strategy based on what happened Tuesday night with Barbara Webb. So that was a really interesting takeaway. Uh, and quite frankly, look, full disclosure, we represent uh, Keith Brooks and his campaign down there in District 31 against R.J. Hawk. Uh, you know, R.J. has uh, requested a recount. Um, that was just such an interesting race. That was probably the other takeaway that, you know, Rhett and I were talking uh, uh, about around 11 o'clock. We were both heading back to our houses and, and Keith was down 11 and, and Rhett uh, you know, to to his credit, said, "Hey, look, I you know I think there's probably a few more votes out there." And then 15 minutes later, I get a text and a call that you know Keith's up 27. And so it was just one of those weird races where, as the numbers came in, uh, it, at one point it was 885 to 885. I mean, so it was just one of those neck and neck races. What's really interesting to me is the last couple of cycles in Arkansas. We talk about every vote matters, but I mean it's so cliche, but it really does, especially recently, where again. John, you mentioned Ben, you know, less than 200 votes uh, with we've got a recount situation going on in District 31. Um, you know, we had if look, Sarah Cap uh, won her district court race right now at 50.4 percent and how important those votes are, you know, not to get into a runoff. And so it's just it's it's pretty incredible. Absolutely, it is. And, you know, that's one of the things that we really dial in with the candidate over the last month. You know, we have two weeks of early voting. You have an incredible opportunity to utilize your network, uh, the people you go to school with, uh, your kids go to school with, the people you go to church with. And um, these primaries, you know, you're essentially one out of 10 people in your district are voting in these things. And so if you can somehow turn out uh, people you know and increase that from one out of 10 to closer to one and a half out of 10, then you've given yourself a a real strategic advantage. And I think uh, you look at uh, Keith Brooks, you look at Sarah Capp, you look at uh, uh, some of the other races we were in, John Milligan in Northeast Arkansas. These guys had networks. Mm -hmm. And at these local levels, a house seat in Arkansas is 30,000 people. So if you're talking about average of 3,000 votes, you know, if you can turn out 300, you've just turned out 10% of the electorate. And so it's a big deal. Um, when we come back, we're going to take a quick break here in just a second. When we come back, I want to talk national politics. John is sort of our, our polling guru. Uh, he does uh, probably since you started the firm, you've done probably close to 100. Uh, well, I want to get your perspective on Joe Biden and what we're seeing nationally when we return on the Dave Ellswick Show. We're back on the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm J.R. Davis uh, filling in for Dave all morning long this morning. Dave's uh, having surgery, so our thoughts are with him. Uh, it is 835, 49 degrees outside. It's going to be 71 degrees today. That's nice. Much better than what we've seen in the last few days. I'm with Red Hatcher, John Gilmore. We're talking election strategy, aftermath of Tuesday night, 
uh, what we're seeing. Uh, let's go ahead and get into the national scene. I've talked about this all morning long, but it really is incredible. And I don't think we've seen anything like it where on Friday, you know, people were preparing the Joe Biden eulogy. Uh, and by Saturday night, you know, the guy had all the momentum in the world. Uh, and I mean, look, think about it like this. On Friday, we had Bloomberg, who was in it to win it, going to be there through the convention. And by Wednesday, Bloomberg was out and had endorsed Joe Biden. Uh, and, and obviously Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar. Um, so this is a two-horse race at this point. Uh, Warren says she's going to stay in. It's just very interesting to me what has transpired with Democrats over the last, like, four days. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, <clears throat> as you look at the Democratic race, you know, and you and you analyze the different candidates that were involved and have now dropped out, you know, I, I just don't think America was ready for – and Amy Klobuchar, I don't think they're ready for an Elizabeth Warren. They're not ready for a Bernie Sanders. I think some people feel like they can feel comfortable with a Joe Biden presidency, um, you know, in comparison to the other folks that were running on the Democratic side. You know, Joe has uh, been around forever, um, and he has had, um, you know, comeback after comeback in the sense of, you know, I mean, he ran for president before, then he was put on the on the ticket with, you know, President Obama. Um, but when the Democrats, you know, I think woke up and looked and, and saw that the fact that Bernie Sanders was quickly gaining momentum, and I just don't think there's any way or any chance that if a Bernie Sanders is is nominated, that um, that he would beat President Trump. And I think the Democrats' best hope is to get Joe Biden across the finish line as the nominee, and that Joe will somehow, you know, have a more moderate approach than some of the other folks that are running and you know if you, if you compare you know joe biden to bernie sanders or elizabeth warren um you know on the democratic side at least they're night and they're pretty night and day different they're in the same party but you know you know joe biden if you just look at that people would say in the democratic party he's a conservative in the democratic party I mean, that's not true by the sense of the definition of conservative right. overall but we were, yeah, we were talking about that earlier that you know it kind of gets thrown around that you know you still have joe biden up on stage in texas saying Hey, Beto, you can handle all of my gun policy and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's just very, very liberal. We got to keep that in mind. There's a lot of these touchy feeling, touchy feely uh, moments in the Democrat race right now, where they're all coalescing around Uncle Joe. It it is strange to me. I, I mean, I, quite frankly, uh, you know, Joe Biden, he's so gaff prone. But you wonder if if that even matters anymore, like. It's so much. I basically and Rhett, you showed a text, shared a text yesterday with me. But there's this idea: does it even really matter at this point what Joe Biden even runs on? Because this is a referendum on Trump, and and I think Biden is the worst candidate. I think for Republicans to face in November because it's less about policy. It's just the fact that it's good old Uncle Joe. It's that grab a beer factor. Everybody kind of likes him. And it's a referendum on Trump. Anybody but Trump, they want to come out and vote, and they're most comfortable with Joe. I just feel like that's probably – that the Democrats have had misstep after misstep in the last four years. They finally did something smart and you know, with getting clearing the field, getting behind Joe. I think that's going to be an issue. Well, in I general. give Democrats a lot of credit. They've always been the party that, A, lacks principles, and because they lack principles, they have an ability to – just do the crass per- political move, which yeah. is consolidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a path where had these other candidates stayed in, uh, Bernie Sanders was probably going to be the nominee. 
after Tuesday. I, mean, I don't yeah. think there would have been. Yeah, and, and and there might have been nothing they could do to stop him. And then over a period of uh, really less than forty eight hours, uh, senator after senator mm-hmm. uh, uh, or or presidential candidate rather dropped out, and then within twenty four hours was endorsing uh, Uncle Joe. And we have an example of that here at home. Uh, about a week ago, former senators uh, Blanche Lincoln and uh, who I hadn't seen in the state in many years. Uh, and and former Senator Mark Pryor were at an event for Amy Klobuchar and were endorsing Senator Senator Klobuchar, their former colleague. And uh, the following weekend, uh, when all this stuff started happening with Joe Biden, when when, when Jill Biden came into town, Mm -hmm. uh, before Amy had endorsed Biden, I guess word had already gotten to Lincoln and Pryor that they needed to do that, and so they were endorsing jill biden before yeah. the person they'd endorsed had endorsed uh biden so pretty interesting yeah it, it was a very interesting 48 hours and now it does feel like with bloomberg dropping out and he'll probably put quite a bit of money uh you know behind biden as well uh to save face from the 500 you know so he can basically spend 600 million and take some credit for for joe's uh nomination so it was interesting, John, as a pollster, and this is your background. I mean, this is your bread and butter. You know this better than anybody in the state. Walk me through one after something that happened so drastically like South Carolina. And it's interesting because I don't think anyone thought Joe was going to perform as well as he did in South Carolina. They thought he'd win, but not by what he did win by. How do you turn around? How do you know something poll-wise in just a short amount of time. I mean, you're talking, you know, we're, we're going, I mean, the race drastically changed Saturday night, and we saw that Tuesday. You know, how do you turn something around that quickly to get a pulse of the nation, something like that? Yeah, I mean, polling is all about being nimble. Um, and, you know, you're only as good as the folks that you have that make your that make the interview phone calls, the sample frame that you set up, the source of your sample, and making sure that you're including in the right mix of landlines and cell phones. But, you know, I mean, we can be in the field with a poll, and we've done it nationally and done it here in Arkansas, you know, within 24 hours. Um, and, you know, you craft the questions, you write them simply, you don't put in a lot of, you know, um, you know big words. I mean, you, you try to make it so that it's uh, very easy to understand. And, and that's, the, that's the key in polling. You know, I pride myself as a pollster in the, in the sense that, I don't over manipulate data. I think you see polling that was not accurate in the last presidential campaign, but that's because you had um, folks that think that they're smarter than the voters. They get a poll out of the field and they start applying what we call <clears throat> waiting to the poll to say, this is what I think the electorate's going to look like. I very rarely will go in and manipulate data or weight data to to make it look at what I think, because at the end of the day, you're never smarter than the voters. You know, I think back to, you know, I did Rick Scott's, um, campaign for governor in Florida with the firm that I was with at the time. And uh, when we polled Rick Scott um, statewide in Florida, um, you know, Governor Scott, I mean, he wasn't governor, he was a former businessman at the time. He had 2% name ID. Um, you know, we did tracking polling going forward. We created a message. You know, he ended up winning, um, you know, the state of Florida and became governor. But when you run a poll and someone has 2% name ID, it means they've got a friend named Rick Scott. They don't even know who the person is. But it just shows you the power of data. Um, Governor Hutchinson's, um, both of his, you know, gubernatorial races, you know, currently serve as Governor Hutchinson's pollster, Congressman Westerman's pollster, Congressman Hill's pollster. But Governor Hutchinson's last track when he was running for governor um, this last um, election cycle, 
um, our polling was less than a half a percent off of what he actually got on Election Day. So polling still works. Polling is still accurate. Um, but the problem is, is you've got to make sure that who's yeah. the pollster you're talking to and what are they doing to the data when it comes out of the field. When you get the raw data out of the field from a poll, you as a pollster have a lot of decisions to make. You can you can go in and, and like I said, apply weights to the demographics and different things of that nature. And, you know, I'm very cautious about that. And I would caution colleagues that uh, that that consider themselves pollsters never to think that they're smarter than the voter, never think they're smarter than the data. And at the end of the day, let the data speak for itself. Well, how many how many uh, polls do you think you've conducted just just with Gilmore Strategy Group? Uh, just with Gilmore Strategy Group in the last, you know, four years, probably over, you know, well over a hundred, um, you know, and then in the last, you know, ten years, um, when I was doing it at a more national level, I mean, I've done probably, you know, well over, I mean, it's in the thousands, um, and again, in nearly all fifty states, and yeah. you know, it's just when you have the ability to have data and data-driven campaigns, it changes everything about how you message, it changes about the the mechanisms you use. As we talked about earlier, the buckets that you fill, and uh, it should drive your decision making. The problem with polling today is it gets more expensive every year that goes by. And so, for a lot of our races here in Arkansas, um, there was very few that we wanted to spend the money, no. you know, because of the limited resources candidates had. You want to put it all in voter contact. But if you can get the dollars together, you know, to run a good, robust survey. It will dictate your entire strategy for your campaign, and not just your campaign for your business. Yeah, um, you know, look, we used to poll for, um, polled for NFL teams, polled for um, NBA teams, uh, polled for National Hockey League teams, uh, and then corporations, a myriad of different corporations. It'll drive and help your business as well. And so, if you've got a, you know, uh, a business that has uh, that has issues that you need to work through, think about. You're not just polling voters. You can poll just adults. You can poll a certain age group. Yeah. You can do focus groups. There's just a whole lot. If you if you dig down and understand voter attitudes or just attitudes of people, it, it'll help you immensely. Yeah, and I think, too, when you talk about it, it gets ex- more expensive You know, every single year. It's worth it. I mean, you're getting so much information that that helps, as you mentioned, drive you know whatever you do, whether it is a campaign. And that's the other thing. People think so much. You know, There's this connotation with polling and campaigning but you can use it for everything i mean if you if you have a business you're trying to see you know specifically what drives a consumer and that sort of thing uh it's really really uh uh you know uh, important information to have which obviously can be a little bit pricey but it's worth having in the end well one good example i mean we we used to pull for the orlando magic and pull for the miami dolphins in both of those instances those two sports teams wanted to know who was coming to their games. They wanted to know uh, information about the demographics of people that were attending, what the money they were spending, and it was very informative to them. And I, and and just as that translates in that business sense, which is really cool to get to work for a you know professional sports team, just in that sense, it can translate to any other business or and then in campaigns. What I am disappointed in though is that polling got a stain on you know opinion research after that last presidential race when every poll said hillary clinton was going to be um, elected you know president of the united states now i will say caveat to that i wasn't polling nationally at that time i don't know what my poll would have showed i would like to think that it would have showed that you know trump would, would have won the presidential election but again the key there is 
making sure that as a pollster you're not over manipulating your data. And I think in each one of those instances you had pollsters saying, I'm predicting personally, because they get smart. They think they're smarter than the voter. I'm predicting personally what I think that turnout's going to be. And they have no clue. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. You're exactly right. I think there's a lot of foregone conclusions in 2016 where, you know, probably not paying attention to the data as much as they probably should have, or it was a little bit weighted in some areas that maybe it shouldn't have been. But, you know, I think that we've we've had a lot of success with the polls we've run uh, through Gilmore Strategy Group. And to the point you made, too, um, you know, when you've got an advertising budget, a marketing budget, you want to know how best to use that, right? And so polling comes in uh, handy with that as well. The last thing I like, the one thing I want to add on polling is we do live interview polls. I have attempted and tried to do what folks look at as robo surveys where someone gets a phone call. And, and quite frankly, folks need to look at it too because it, you got to be careful in Arkansas as well with the laws that are out there. I'm not even exactly even sure that some of these robo polls that are run are actually legal to be run. We need to look at you know, all the different legal aspects of that. But we do live interview surveys, and it makes a, a, a all the difference in the world when you're trying to learn voter attitudes and you speak to someone live on the phone because you can learn so much about that person if you're having a conversation with them versus someone pushing a button on the mm. phone and saying, I'm voting for, you know, one, two, or three. Press one, two, or three. And, uh, and, and we don't do that. I mean, and that's why it's a little bit more expensive, but at the end of the day, it's effective. Interesting stuff. All right, when we come back, I want to get you guys to weigh in on this whole Schumer deal. Uh, I basically just want to hear the audio again because the guy, it just comes off like half deranged. Uh, we'll be right back on the Dave Ellswick Show for the last 10 minutes. All right, we're back on the Dave Ellswick Show. J.R. Davis filling in for Dave this morning. I want to get to something that's been kind of all over the news. Uh, started yesterday, and they've talked about it today. He's now doubling down, um, but that is the uh, the comments made by Senator Chuck Schumer yesterday at a uh, pro-choice rally right outside the Supreme Court. Supreme Court obviously uh, going over their first uh, abortion case with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh both on the bench. And so there was a rally yesterday uh, and things uh, got a little bit out of hand uh, with with the good senator. Go ahead and play that clip. Inside the walls of this court, the Supreme Court is hearing arguments, as you know, for the first major abortion right cases since Justices Kavanaugh and Justices Gorsuch came to the bench. We know what's at stake. Over the last three years, women's reproductive rights have come under attack in a way we haven't seen in modern history. From Louisiana to Missouri to Texas, Republican legislatures are waging a war on women, all women, and they're taking away fundamental rights. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. All right. So uh, so the reason I bring that up, a lot of people weighing in felt like he went way too far. This is what's interesting, uh, though, to me on this particular issue. Uh, there's an article in The New York Times today. Uh, obviously, Chief Justice Roberts uh, condemned the remarks by Schumer. Uh, he said, quote, justices know that criticism comes with the territory, but threatening statements of this sort from the highest levels of government are not only inappropriate, they are dangerous. He went on to say all members of the court will continue to do their job without fear or favor 
from whatever quarter. So that was his response to the comments made by Schumer. But then Schumer's spokesperson uh, came back and said this, Senator Schumer's comments were a reference to the political price Senate Republicans will pay for putting these justices on the court and a warning that the justices will unleash a major grassroots movement on the issue of reproductive rights. For Justice Roberts to follow the right wing's deliberate misinterpretation of what Senator Schumer said, while remaining silent on President Trump's attacks on Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg last week, shows Justice Roberts does not just call balls and strikes. So the interesting part about that is that you've got Senator Schumer's guy going out there saying, that is not what he meant. He didn't mean it. This is ridiculous. We hear that last part where he goes, you will pay a price. Have you ever heard the phrase, you will pay a price, and it not mean some sort of threat? Well, I mean, first of all, if you just played that clip without telling me that that was Chuck Schumer, I mean, you might have thought that was like Tito, the communist revolutionary from <laughs> Yugoslavia. I mean, you know, that sounded like something you'd hear in Venezuela right now. I mean, respect for our third branch of government, the, the courts, uh, is a foundation principle in this country and you know the courts don't have uh some military enforcement arm or or anything like that literally what holds this country together is that we all come together and say we have this independent arbiter in the supreme court and our judicial system and we may not always like the decisions a lot of conservatives didn't like it when john roberts voted to uphold uh the Mm -hmm. affordable care act Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know what what you didn't see us down there marching down there and telling everybody that you know, there's going to be some political price to pay on these guys' heads or whatever. So, again, but that's common what you see from Democrats. They, they get out with this rhetoric uh, that, again, sounds like it ought to be from uh, some totalitarian communist regime. Yeah. And that's what Schumer's trying to do there. And, and instead of just humbling himself and apologizing, he's trying to double down. And, and on the Trump comments about uh, Sotomayor, I mean— he was criticizing her for her having criticized the administration. Right. No, you're right. It's different. And that's where I think, going back to what you said about Democrats, this is exactly what Democrats tend to do, especially at the national level, where, you know, basically uh, do as I say, not as I do. And and that's what we have here with Schumer. You know, where they attack Trump for saying things similar to this all of the time and say that we need to be above the above reproach we've heard it once we've heard it a thousand times people quote michelle obama's high road constantly especially democrats but then you have the leader uh the minority leader in the senate go out there and say these comments and now doubling down and being defensive of those comments it's just very hypocritical <clears throat> look you need to respect the office uh, and re- you, know, you respect the office of the presidency you respect the the branch of government and the supreme court um you know clearly it sounded like a threat i, I commend i do commend Chief Justice Roberts for, um, you know, issuing the statement that he issued. And, uh, you know, let's get to the heart of the matter. I mean, you know, the issue of abortion in this country brings up a lot of passions on both sides. Um, you know, I was reminded recently when I was sitting in, in church on uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, our pastor stood up and said, abortion is not a political issue. It's an issue of the heart. And it really is. And I think that's why it really stirs up a lot of passions on both sides. And as you look at the nation, and the one thing I'm encouraged about as we as we go forward is America every year becomes a more pro-life nation. And uh, at some point, you know, Chuck Schumer is going to realize he's on the wrong side of the issue. And uh, I do pray for a heart change for folks that uh, uh, in that in that circumstance. But at the end of the day, 
um, you know, what he did was wrong. And I and I commend uh, the chief justice for for calling it out in that in that way. And Republican, Democrat, independent, doesn't matter what party you're in. Show respect for the office. Um, you know, if President Obama was in office, we respect the office of the presidency and, you know, continue forward. Well stated. Uh, it's been a heck of a show this morning. John Rett, thanks so much for joining me. I want to also thank the rest of our guests, uh, Katie Beck, Chelsea O'Kelly, and of course, I uh, really appreciate having uh, Senator Bozeman and Governor Hutchinson join us this morning. Uh, the Dave Ellswick Show will be back tomorrow morning starting at 6 a.m. I'm J.R. Davis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>